Leviticus, we're going to look at the complete other end of the Bible. And Jude, if you haven't found it yet, it's just shy of the book of Revelation. Jude, we're going to, we're going to cover the whole book this morning, but we're going to read just the first uh, four verses to start out with. Jude, chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The precious, inerrant, infallible word of God says this. Jude, a bondservant of Jesus Christ and brother of James, to those who are called, sanctified by God the Father, and preserved in Christ Jesus, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith, which was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain men have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were marked out for this condemnation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. Church family, the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our Lord endures forever. Let's go to him and thank him for it. Father, we thank you for your word. We confess and agree with your word that it is true without any mixture of error. Lord, that it is a light to us, that it is a light for our feet, a lamp unto our path. Lord, that it's sweeter than honey, that it's sharper than any double-edged sword. And so, Father, we come to you now with, our, with your word here in our hands, ready to to meditate upon it, to, to think about it, to study it. And Lord, as well, that we, that we also prepare ourselves with, with readiness to obey. So Lord, would you now work in our hearts for your glory and for our good and for the good of the nations, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. You may be seated. The Epistle of Jude. This, this is going to be what you might call an overview sermon. Uh, it may not cover every detail of the book of Jude. However, what I want to do is give you a general sense of the book so that, uh, Lord willing, as you're, as you're reading through the Bible, and my prayer is that you are uh, in the future, that this will be a benefit to you. This will be a blessing to you. Um, so with that being said, let's get right into it. And I want you to see first and foremost in, in Jude chapter 1, because there's only one chapter. Uh, but verse 1, I want you to see Jude's greeting. Jude's greeting there in verses 1 and 2. Jude, his book, it follows the, the New Testament pattern of introducing the author, uh, then uh, addressing his audience, and then a prayerful greeting of some kind. And so Jude or Judas in the Greek... Judah in the Hebrew, um, as the author introduces himself as what? As the bondservant of Jesus Christ and as the brother to James. Now, that begs the question. There's a, a bunch of different Judas or Judases in the New Testament as well as James's. So who specifically is this author? Well, he, he implies throughout this letter that he is not an apostle. So uh, there's only one Judas, that is not an apostle, but that has a brother named James that we know of. And it's found in, he's found there in Matthew chapter 13, verse 55, where, he, where the people of Nazareth are talking about Jesus. And they say, is this not the carpenter's son? Uh, 
Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James, ha-ha, Joseph, Simon, and Judas? There's our guy. All right, so that means that Jude, the author of this letter, is also the Lord's half-brother. And so he identifies himself with James, who is a leader by now in the Jerusalem church, because he and his audience would have already known each other. This little reminder would have clarified their relationship and helped them to readily accept this letter. But really, it begs the question, too, couldn't he have appealed to the fact, like, hey, you know what? I'm the Lord's half-brother. So listen to what I say, right? It seems like that would be like a surefire thing. Like that would be, that would open a ton of doors for him in terms of, uh, in terms of the local church. However, look at what he does. Instead of, instead of really throwing his, his biological uh, connections here to Jesus, what he does is he puts the spiritual relationship he has with the Lord first and foremost. He sets Jesus in front of you. Not as his ticket to get in the door, but as the Lord. The Lord of this poor bondservant named Jude. And so with that being said, um, in the same way, as we look further down in, in verse 1, he, he introduces his audience. And he does really this the same way. He doesn't, he doesn't give us a lot of that where and when kind of stuff that we were hoping for. However... Um, I, I do think we can reasonably guess uh, here there that, that there is some sort of connection to the church in or around Rome. We'll talk about that later on. But look at what he does say. He said, to those who are called, sanctified by God, by God the Father, and preserved in Jesus Christ. Hold on to, Jer- to Jude's words here to, about his audience because they'll be important later. So, and listen though, listen though, again, seeing Christ as the one who is central, he is the one who is powerful, he is the one who is mighty and good and gracious, and look at how he, how he this, this uh, greeting that he extends to them, mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now, we, we hear that kind of stuff all the time today, and it's not necessarily all in the church. Anybody could wish that toward anybody. But I want you to think about what he's already said in the way that he's introduced himself, the way that he addresses his audience. Only in the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ will true, lasting mercy, peace, and love be found. And that's what he desires for the audience. And by extension, that's what he desires. And that's what the Holy Spirit, as the ultimate author of all scripture, desires for you and for me. Praise God. So let's look now at verses 3 and 4, and I want you to see Jude's goal, his goal. Jude opens the main text of his letter by sharing his heart toward his audience. He, first, he calls them what? Beloved. Beloved. Certainly, Jude loved this audience with the pastor's heart, uh, but not just, not just Jude, though. The New Testament writers, when they use this term, beloved, they are, they're also appealing to the, the understanding that not just the author loves you, but God himself loves you, beloved by God. And so with that being said, then he, he also says that he is diligent. He sets this background of, he said, I was diligent, right? Diligent, eager, making every effort to write to you. About what? About their common salvation. And that doesn't mean that it's common, ordinary, everyday salvation, but that 
This is the salvation that they share in common through the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the tie that binds. His heart was bent toward them to love and care for them in Christ with the heartbeat, the lifeblood of the salvation that they shared, the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And so really, church family, are we so diligent to write to each other, to talk to each other, to stir one another up, as, uh, as the, the text said today from Hebrews 10, uh, toward love and good works in Christ. Will we really look back at the end of this life and say, you know, I wish I'd talked more about football or about that thing that went viral on social media than trusting in the Lord Jesus? I, I think time will bear out that that would not be the case. But the beauty of this is that this is just Jude's background. He says, I'm, I was diligent to write these things to you. Uh, but he says, beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary. I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. And so I want you to see here an exhortation. An exhortation. We'll talk about what that means. But that exhortation is to contend earnestly for the faith. The Lord made Jude see that it was necessary in this specific case that his audience be doing something. And that something was what? Contending earnestly. And that word there in the original language, it is, it, actually that phrase is all one word. It's the, actually the word that we get the word to agonize from. Right? And so it means to, to exert intense effort on behalf of something. Well, on behalf of what? The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. I love that phrase, don't you? The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Let's just take, let's camp out here for just a second and think about that, right? That's this faith, this common salvation that we have is not achieved by us, but it was delivered, right? Delivered to us. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. For by grace you've been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast. It was delivered once. 1 Peter 3, 18. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the just for the unjust, that he might bring us to God. It was delivered once for all to the saints. All right, 2 Corinthians 5, 21, for he, for he made him, Jesus, who knew no sin, to be sin for us, that we might become the saints, the made holy ones, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. 1 Corinthians 1, 2 says, Paul is addressing one of the most messed up churches in the, in the whole New Testament. And what does he call them? He says, to those who are sanctified, made holy. Their, their church life is a train wreck. But he says, you are called and sanctified in Christ Jesus. Called to be what? Saints with all who in every place call on the name of Jesus Christ our Lord. There is no other faith worth contending for. Worth exerting intense effort on behalf of than the faith once for all delivered to the saints by the Lord Jesus Christ according to his gospel. Amen. Jude found it necessary to exhort, to strongly encourage them to contend for this faith. Why? Verse 4 tells us. He says, for certain men have crept in unnoticed who long ago were marked out for this commendation. Ungodly men who turn the grace of our God into lewdness and deny the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ. So why? Because there were false brethren among the church. 
We see that as, as Jude says, again, certain men had crept in. Into what? Into the local church, right? You might say, well, what about, wasn't it, could it have been just like Christian culture or things like that? Really, first century Christianity was a web of, or a network of tightly knit local churches that knew their own and knew their own well. They were under persecution both from the Jews and from the Gentiles, and so they couldn't really afford to be anything else. And so uh, anyone claiming to be a brother or sister, but they didn't have a, 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 a stamp of approval or a, some sort of relationship with their local church would have been met with concern and, and, and a little bit of, uh, of caution. So it would have been greatly alarming then to this audience when Jude says that, uh, that in a, such a local church that certain men have crept in unnoticed. And notice, there's no time stamp on when these people crept in. Right? He's not just railing against the, the people that have been joining lately. Please hear me. <laughs> uh, this is not just, hey, these new people need to get out. No, he's saying there's no time stamp here. They could have, been, they could have come recently. They could have been there for years. That's not the important thing. But what he does say is important. He says, they have been marked from long ago for this condemnation. They have been marked long ago for this commendation. What commendation? Well, these men, he says, they are ungodly men. This commendation, calling them what they are. They are ungodly in their character. And he points out in two ways there in verse 4. He says they're licentious. What, they, what that means is that they turn or transform the grace of God into a license for lewdness, for extreme immorality, for sensuality. So their life does not, in their character, in the, the choices that they're making, the activities that they engage themselves in, the things that they see, the words that they say, they are not displaying the character of the Lord Jesus. Yet they're, yet they're also taking the name of brother or sister. Not only are they licentious, licentious, but they're defiant. They defy the only Lord God and our Lord Jesus Christ as their authority. And we'll talk about what they put as their authority in just a second. But Jude tells us why these men were marked out long ago for this condemnation. The Lord is making the situation abundantly clear to us. Jude is proclaiming the Lord's condemnation on them because even though they might be in the local church, they are not in the Lord Jesus Christ. Please hear that distinction. Physical proximity to a church, participation in church activities does not equal being in Christ. If you hear nothing else today, please understand that. And biblical theology, that we've been talking a lot about for the last year or two, tells us that if, if we're not justified in Christ under the new covenant, then we're still under Adam in the old covenant. Which means that we are then rightly guilty before God as sinners and deserving of his judgment, which he marked out from the beginning of the world. So this sets the stage really for, and this gives us really, not just sets the stage, it gives us Jude's big idea. Please hear me, we've moved further than this, but sometimes the text gives you the big idea in the middle. Okay, So the big idea for the book of Jude, really in our message as well, is that we contend earnestly for the faith. Why? Because false brethren undermine it. We contend earnestly for the faith because false brethren undermine it. Okay, so in the following verses, then Jude takes his time 
to help his audience and by extension us to identify these false brethren. And then he'll show them how as true brethren, they must contend for the faith amongst their church family. So first let's see Jude's reminder about false brethren. Notice he says that, uh, remember, I want to remind you there in verse five. And it's at this point, I want to talk about this, this letter's connection with the letter of second Peter. A good deal of confusion that we encounter in the book of Jude would it be helped if we read 2 Peter first. And so in, in 2 Peter, the aging apostle reminds his audience this in chapter 1. He says, for this reason, and again, this reason is that call to make your, your, um, your calling and election sure. He says, I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things. Though you know and are established in the present truth. Yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent, his earthly body, to stir you up by reminding you, knowing that shortly I must put off my tent, just as the Lord Jesus Christ showed me. Verse 15. Moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. So what is this reminder that he's talking about after he's gone? Certainly having his words written down. We have them here today, right? Praise the Lord, right? Certainly also having the gospel of Mark. John Mark, who is there in the gospel of Mark. He's traveling with Paul and Barnabas in in the book of Acts. Church history tells us, though, that he ends up in Rome with, with Simon Peter. And so the gospel of Mark is actually one that's been granted to him, given to him, invested in him by the apostle Peter. The apostle Peter did what Jesus Christ commanded him to do, to make disciples of all nations. He invested himself into faithful men who were able to teach others also. And I, and I think based on the dating of, this, of these two letters, but also based on what we see in church history, that Jude would be among those that, that Simon Peter invested in as well. And that with that being said, that I well, actually... Um, Peter is talking about things in future tense here, about how false brethren will come, false teachers will come, that Jude then later on is saying it's here, it's in present tense now. Not only that, we have writings from people like Eusebius, a a historian, that put the family of Jude in Rome through the rule of Domitian onto, I think, uh, I'm not even going to try to pronounce the guy's name, but toward the end of the first century, A.D. They're working the land and they're a, they're a gift to the church and they're a frustration to heretics. And everybody said, amen. Right. So there there's all this being being told, being given to us here. I think it's safe for us to say that Jude is picking up where Peter left off. And it's not just him. There's others. Right. There's John Mark and there's others that Peter has invested in until today. Praise God for the command to make disciples and how there's been this steady stream of of that being reproduced throughout history. So Jude is continuing Peter's work of reminding us about false brothers. And he draws our attention to two specific things. First of all, he says to remember, remember these false brothers' fate. Remember their fate. I left my water all the way back here. He says, remember their fate. Um, these false brothers, he says, they may be able to fool the, even the church, but they can't fool God. 
Jude's already told us to have, that they've already been marked out long ago for this condemnation. Jude paints us in three specific pictures uh, that help us to understand that unless the Lord intervenes, these false brothers are on what Jesus called in Matthew 7, the road to destruction. And my hope is that as we look at this, that our hearts are filled with compassion towards those that are, that are false brothers and sisters. Because they're deceived. And they're, they're stumbling toward a, a, an eternity where they're separated from God unless the Lord intervenes. And so may this kind, this kind of permeates the rest of the letter. And so my prayer is that your heart would be pricked with compassion. All right. So at first we see in verse 5, um, remember, he says three pictures here. First, remember. Remember how the Lord destroyed unbelieving Israelites after he delivered the entire Israelite nation from Egypt. After, right? They had been delivered by the blood of the Lamb on the doorway as death passed right over. The, they had been delivered to the Red Sea, though Pharaoh and his armies did the dead man's float. Anybody remember that song? Um, they, they, had, uh, they had done all these things. They had been through. But Paul tells us in Romans, he reminds us that just because you're a descendant of Abraham, it doesn't mean that you're a true believing member of God's covenant community. And so with that, it's not a guarantee just because you're Abraham's offspring. And so through the golden calf incident, through Korah's rebellion, through fiery serpents being let loose into into the camp, this entire generation dies in the wilderness. Why? Because they did not trust that the Lord would safely bring them into the land that he promised them. All right, that's illustration number one. Number two, in verse six, remember how the Lord has reserved disobedient angels, Satan and his demons, for destruction. These are creatures who saw God in all of his majesty, but they did not keep their proper domain, the New King James says, or as the ESV says, that they did not stay within their position of authority. They were not satisfied with the good, God, the good gifts that God had given, the, the good responsibilities, the good limitations that God had given. And so they left their abode or they, were, they left their proper dwelling. And so now they await the destruction that is rightly reserved for them on the great day, the day of the Lord, when he will return and judge his enemies. Third, in verse 7. The Lord has set forth Sodom and Gomorrah as an example. Verse 7 says, As Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in a similar manner to these, having given themselves over to sexual immorality and gone after strange flesh, are set forth as an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Right? So Sodom and Gomorrah, they did just like Jude's other two previous examples. They gave themselves over to sin, and in this case, sexual immorality. So the Lord gave them over to destruction, raining down on them with fire and sulfur. And so in each illustration, these people who rebel were among the company of the righteous. They knew what was right and good and true, and yet they rejected it. And that kind of rejection is met by God with decisive judgment. And so then Jude transitions here and he says, in the same way, right? And now he begins to list... um, what we might call traits of these false brethren. And so this is a big chunk here. And he says, this is, he says, not only remember their fate, but recognize their traits. Recognize their traits. He says, likewise, also, these dreamers defile the flesh, reject authority, and speak evil of dignitaries. 
From, so from verse 8 to verse 16, Jude moves in this circular pattern, which is common. Um, if, you, if you were studying 1 John, you saw that where he kind of goes around. He goes to A to B to C, back to A, back to B, maybe back to A. Right? There's just kind of this circular pattern. And the way that I picture it is almost that Jude is kind of circling around these false brethren, describing their traits and narrowing in all the while so that there's nowhere for them to hide. And again, it's not just so like, man, get them, yeah, right? No, it's, it's more of like he's hemming them in so they see the truth of their, of their circumstances. They see the danger that they're in so that they will cry to the Lord for deliverance. And my, that's my prayer for us as we look at these, at these things. And remembering that also, were it not for the Lord, we would be in the same place still. All right? So Jude says, likewise also... Uh, Again, what is he saying likewise to? The three illustrations from verses 5 to 7. Verses 8 and 9, he says, These rely on their dreams as authority over and above the word of God. Mishandling, uh, really, uh, the prophet Joel and his prophecy about how uh, old men would would dream dreams and young men would see visions. They they mishandle that and instead say, Well, well now because I had this dream, uh, I I can do this thing that God doesn't say in his word or says not to do in his word because the dream is the authority, not the word of God itself. He says they also, they reject, let's see, they defile the flesh, right, through, uh, through sensual living, through immorality, and then they reject authority. They go above and beyond their station, Jude says, seeking to rebuke even, he says, dignitaries. The idea there is uh, angelic principalities and powers like we see in Ephesians 6. Right, rebuking principalities and powers on their own with their own words, and not allow and not relying on the Lord instead to judge and to rebuke. Second Peter gives us some clarity here. Second Peter two verses ten to eleven. They are presumptuous, self-willed. They are not afraid to speak evil of dignitaries, whereas angels who are greater in power and might who uh, do not bring a reviling accusation against them. Again, principalities, powers, thinking, demons, things like this, before the Lord. And then Jude actually sets a godly contrast there, um, where he actually uses Michael, the archangel, in the midst of a dispute with Satan himself. He dares not to revile him or to accuse him, to rebuke him, even though he's got good cause. But what is his response? He says, the Lord rebuke you. Just leave that right there. Verse 10, the, he says they are presumptuously speaking evil of things they don't know or even understand. It's tempting to have an opinion about everything, especially in today's world. It's tempting as a pastor to have an opinion about everything. Pray for us in that regard. All right? So they presumptuously speak evil of what they don't know or understand. They corrupt themselves like unreasoning beasts, like brute beasts, it says, with whatever they know naturally. Right? Uh, verse 11, Jude says, woe to them. Literally, it means how terrible it will be for them. And again, notice that he keeps bringing back in. Remember their fate. Remember their fate. Remember their fate. Right? He sets that in front of us over and over again. He says, woe to them. Uh, there in verse 11, Because they have gone the way of Cain, think back to Genesis 4, falling prey to sin. In Cain's case, uh, committing murder. 
Woe to them because they have, uh, they have run greedily in the error of Balaam. Think back to Numbers 22 through 24, chapter 31. Who Peter says that he loved the wages of unrighteousness. They have perished in the rebellion of Korah. Who was Korah? Remember number 16? Moses' cousin, he leads a bunch of... Uh, he actually, Korah was a, was a musician, right? So, so he leads a bunch of, of, uh, of other Levites in a rebellion against Moses' and ultimately God's leadership. And what happens? The ground opens up and swallows them. So they have rebelled and perished. Verse 12, Jude says these people are spots. Literally, the word means like they're blemishes. They're blemishes at your love feast. Now, love feast, uh, that means really more like uh, our fellowships when we have uh, Wednesday night supper or Sunday night, but also had the Lord's Supper attached. So these are what love feasts are. And he says, these people are like blemishes at your love feast. Why? Because they just keep on eating, feasting, drinking there in your presence, knowing that nobody, as if nobody's going to hold them accountable for their actions. They just keep on serving themselves. It shouldn't be. Right? Um, Jude also gives us other pictures Again, not just of their traits, but these traits show us how morally bankrupt and how, how unbeneficial they are for the church. They're like clouds. In verse 12, clouds absent of beneficial rain, just blown about by the wind. They're like autumn trees that should be producing fruit. Think of the fig tree with Jesus. Should be producing fruit, but they don't. Being twice over dead, pulled up by the roots. There's no way, if it's pulled up by the roots, that it can produce anything. Verse 13, they're like raging waves of the sea, foaming up their own shame. Isaiah talks about them in in chapter 57. He says, but the wicked are like the troubled sea when it cannot rest, whose waters cast up mire and dirt. There is no peace, says my God, for the wicked. Just foaming, just producing uh, dirt and mire and Stirring up all kinds of awful things. They're like shooting stars. Shooting stars are pretty for a second. And then they flame out in utter darkness. This is why it talks about with with deacons and with pastors, with teachers. They need to be proven. Right? Anybody can hit a home run once. The idea is more like faithfulness. Over and over, faithfully teaching the word of God, faithfully serving God's people. That's what it's about. So then in uh, verse 14 and 15, Jude does something that's interesting here. He quotes from a book that's outside the Bible. He quotes from a book called First Enoch. Um, Enoch being the seventh from Adam. We see him in, in, uh, in Genesis. But he quotes a pro- uh, prophecy here that, again, it's not in the Bible. It's an extra biblical account. Um, However, it's good for us to remember that the Bible, the content of the Bible, specifically prophecy, is not a matter of one's own interpretation, the the Apostle Peter tells us, but holy men who are guided by the Holy Spirit. And so what I want you to see here is that uh, Jude, much like Paul, who quotes Epimenides and Menander at Acts 17, famous Greek poets, who were writing poems about Zeus. You want to hear more about that? Talk to one of our Sprouts kids. They're talking about that the next two weeks. There are quotes in the Bible that are from outside 
places outside the Bible. But what I want you to see here is that in this case, it is historically true. It is familiar amongst his first century readers, and it supports the premise for which he's writing. And so with that, he uses this. It should not be counted as a strike against him that maybe this is not a legit book of the Bible, right? So now, what what does Enoch actually say? Enoch says, the Lord is coming to judge the ungodly, even the ungodly among his saints. Why? For their ungodly deeds and their ungodly words. Verse 16 Jude continues this theme. He says, these ones, these false brothers and sisters, they are grumblers, complainers. Their walk, their pattern of daily life is directed by their own lustful desires. They use great big theological words aimed to impress and to give them advantage in the local church. But they're empty. They're unable to produce anything that is beneficial in building up the body of Christ. And so in the midst of this long list of of traits, I love the the words of, of verse 17. But you, beloved. Remember that from verse 1? Actually from verse 3, I think. But you, beloved. He changes He changes direction here. These words really move us into the next to last section of the book. We see Jude's exhortation. Jude's exhortation. Remember what was the point to the book? What was the big idea? That we contend earnestly for the faith because false brethren undermine it. So now um, we have this clear picture of of, of false brethren and of, of their fate, of their traits. And Jude now shows us how to be a contender. Okay. This is how it's done. And he starts in a familiar place. You think, oh, well, we're moving forward now. And he says, remember, he takes us back. Again, he takes us back to who? The apostles. Remember the words of the apostles. And, and, I, and this is, if you're looking just at your bulletin for notes right now, I'm sorry. Uh, there were some things that, that, that came to light after I gave Miss Tracy my, my outline for the, for the bulletin. So I apologize. I do have little handouts that you can look at later on. Um, my prayer is that you've already got it. But, uh, but I want you to see, first of all, this is not a surprise to God. Remember, this is not a surprise to God. Okay? In verse 17, it says, But you, beloved, remember the words which were spoken by the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. How they told you there would be mockers in the last time who would walk according to their own ungodly lust. These are sensual persons who cause divisions not having the spirit. Jude here is echoing much of what Peter says in, in 2 Peter chapter 2. It's also what Paul told the Ephesian elders in, in, uh, in Acts chapter 20. It's what the Lord Jesus told the disciples in Matthew 7, Matthew 10, Luke 10. We can even go back into the Old Testament where writers like uh, prophets like Ezekiel in chapter 22 are warning these things. Sheep, uh, I send you out as sheep among wolves, wolves even in sheep's clothing. The point is, the Lord knew. This doesn't surprise him. This hasn't caught him off guard. And instead, he's been doing this steady work of preparing his people for such a thing. So don't, don't fear Again, what Peter and others had warned about as coming from a distance, Jude says, now it's here. 
Open your eyes. Wake up. Let's get to work. Because there are mockers amongst the church that walk according to their ungodly lusts. Sensual persons who cause divisions because they don't have the Holy Spirit. Wake up. They're here. And at this point, it would be really easy for us to launch out on some sort of like false brother witch hunt, right? Grilling everybody around us, sifting them like wheat, just giving them hundreds of questions, questioning everything they do and why they do it. Launching our own discernment ministry, right? There there are all these things. I just, again, should we use discernment? Absolutely we should. But I want you to hear Jude's words in the spirit in which they're meant. Because to do all this hunting people down stuff, that's a response of hatred that's rooted in fear. And, and what God has given us, 2 Timothy tells us, is God has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and love and self-discipline, a sound mind. So instead, let's, do, let's remember these things. As we remember their fate, as we recognize their traits, and first of all, Let's keep ourselves in the love of God. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Again, sounds weird. If we're those who are called and sanctified by God the Father, preserved in Christ Jesus, like verse 1 says, then how do we keep ourselves in the love of God? That sounds like an oxymoron, right? Well, the idea here is actually is abiding. It's abiding in the love of God, just like the Lord Jesus said in John 15. Listen to Jesus' words here. He says, as the Father loved me, even so I have loved you. Abide in my love. There's one. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love. Just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy may remain or abide in you and that your joy may be full. I think Jesus wants us to abide in God's love, don't you? So first, and, and the beauty of this is that we go back to, to Jude in this, there's the central command, keep yourselves in the love of God. But just like with the Great Commission, Jude surrounds it with all these participles that fill it with meaning. So there's the central command, but there's also all these participles, these I-N-G verbs that are surrounding it. So let's look here, Jude uh, 20 through 21. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith, praying in the Holy Spirit, Keep yourselves in the love of God, looking for the mercy of the Lord Jesus unto eternal life. Let's take each of those in turn. First, he says in verse 20, building yourselves up on your most holy faith. What does that mean? It means learn more and more and more about trusting in Jesus from God's word. We aim to be made more like Christ, not just by better understanding, but better applying and better reproducing God's word. Reproducing the gospel according to the word of God. Secondly, it says we are to be praying in the Holy Spirit. That doesn't mean that we have a secret prayer language, but, it, but rather it means that we pray in the name of Jesus. And again, even that doesn't mean that we, that we just rubber stamp Jesus' name at the end of our prayers and we get whatever we want. But we pray under the mantle of Jesus, under, the, under the, the authority and the power of Jesus, in the character, in consistently, consistent with God's character, with his will. Because it's the Spirit's job to point us to Christ. Right? John, uh, in John, Jesus talks about his relationship with the Father. I do nothing of my own. I do only what I see the Father doing. And then he, then he shifts in his language. 
so that we see more and more about the, the, brother, the, the brother or sister's relationship with the Holy Spirit, that it's the same kind of relationship. You do what you see him doing, right? And so prayer works this way. Third, in verse 21, he says, be looking, looking for the mercy of the Lord Jesus unto eternal life. Are you longing for Jesus' return? Uh, my, my prayer is that the more that we do this together, the more you see, I, I try to sow this consistent thread of songs that are longing for the return of Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus, God of mercy, hear our plea, things like this. That as we gather together, that we do so all the more as we see the day approaching, Hebrews 10, 25 says. All right, so now he, takes, he says, these things that you're doing for you, these things, now we take these and apply them as we think about others. All right? And doing these things together, again, we'll keep ourselves or abide in the love of God. And then he commands um, regarding false brethren. There are three kinds of people in verses 22 and 23. And each one of them is further down the road, um, Jesus, what Jesus calls the road to destruction. Which means they're sinking deeper and deeper into sin. And so ministering to each kind of person requires really an increasing amount of discernment um, as we minister to them. So first of all, he says in verse uh, verse 22, let me pull this out and just read real quick. Verse 22, it says, And on some have compassion, making a distinction. But others, save with fear, pulling them out of the fire, hating even the garment defiled by the flesh. Now, I know you're saying, Justin, you said there were three. <laughs> uh, it looks like from the text there's two. Um, we'll, we're going to get there. All right. So first of all, he says, on some have compassion. To some have compassion. Really, the wording here is more, instead of making a distinction, it's more about those who are doubtful. Those who are doubtful. Boy, verses 22 and 23 are really interesting in the Greek. There was a lot of... There was a lot of soul searching over, over these two verses. So um, let's, let's keep moving. So the idea, ES, the ESV and the New American Standard translate it this way. Have mercy on those who are doubtful. Um, they're being thrown all over the place by every wind of doctrine because they have no anchor for their soul. That's what it comes down to. And so God is commanding us here. Have compassion on them. Why? Because they themselves are deceived. And they're being thrown around everywhere. And and so what we need to do, what God is commanding us to do is have compassion on them. Take them under your wing. Walk with them. Prayerfully, lovingly, by faith with the word of God, give them the gospel. And do all these things that you were praying, that you were doing for yourself in keeping yourself in the love of God. Showing them how to do these things. Because they need it. And doing so in love. Because love is not like a virus that flies in, changes how you feel for a couple of days, and then flies out again. We're familiar with that, right? And we, we want to say that love is the same thing, and it's not. Love is an act of the will. It's a decision. It's accompanied by emotion, but it's not driven by emotion. It's choosing to live, to direct myself, to, to act toward another, toward their greatest good. And what is, what is anybody's greatest good? That they would know the God who made them. That they would, their hearts for, to the roots would be satisfied with the gospel of Jesus Christ. 
So show them compassion to the doubting, chiefly with the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Second, verse 23, to some save from the fire. John MacArthur calls these the convinced. These are people, they're, they're another step down the road. They're beginning to settle into these false doctrines, these lies that come from the pit of hell. <clears throat> so he says, again, save some, snatching them from the fire of judgment. Uh, they're convinced more of these lies. There's a greater sense of urgency, a greater sense of approaching eternity. And so there is also, uh, there's also a greater call for discernment. Because again, these people are sinking deeper and deeper into sin. And so their motives toward you may not be good. And the sin that they're, that they're engaging in, it's infectious. It is a danger, not just to them, but to you as well. So, there, so though discernment shapes the response, the response must still be to act in love with the gospel by faith. Of course... Uh, We are not the ones who do the actual saving, right? So it is by faith that the Lord will save. But the Lord commands us to share the gospel and promises to bless our obedience with his presence. And then third, verse 23, to some show mercy with fear. You might call these the entrenched. Um, Now, it's weird because like, how do you see that in the text? Can I just tell you, (laughs) this this has been been fun. Um, In the original language, there is this phrase, and some, or but some, and, it, and in these two verses, we see that phrase three times. And so uh, the New King James translates this very differently from the New American Standard, from the ESV, and from a couple of others. And so, um, so with this, the idea here is, it says, And some, uh, showing mercy, but with fear, hating the garment defiled by the flesh. These are people who are in their final steps on the, on the path to destruction. They're entrenched in their deception. And the word here is actually the word for fear, phobos. It's the word we get phobia from, right? So, uh, so we, there, is a, there is an understanding here, here with fear, but I want you to notice what the fear is directed to, okay? And he fills that with meaning by, with, a, with a, another ING word, a participle. Hating, interestingly enough, which also means hate, or even the garment defiled, which means stained, corrupted by the flesh or the sinful nature. Jude uses pretty strong terms here, um, terms that I'm not really exactly comfortable sharing on a Sunday morning, uh, about how, to, how clearly infectious and dangerous sin is. And the idea would be here, if you had a friend that had leprosy, you would do everything you could to be merciful to them, to be compassionate to them, and to get them the remedy that they need. But you would not go and Put their leprosy defiled clothing on yourself, right? It's just foolish. It doesn't do anything to help your friend and it puts you in danger of being in the same condition yourself. And so with that, then my fear and my hatred is not directed at my friend because again, my battle is not against flesh and blood. My fear and my hatred is directed towards sin because it's, it's by sin that we got ourselves into this, in, this whole mess in the first place. I fear and hate my sin because um, I fear and hate my sin that my friend has become entrenched in because I am not immune to it myself. And hear me, the Lord Jesus is worthy of all my praise. And the Lord Jesus is worthy of all my friends' praise. He's worthy. Even, even that of a false brother. 
So I weep over my sin, over, over their sin, over my sin. Right? We weep over this before the Lord. We beg him to rescue them from it. We wait and we watch carefully, asking God and uh, agreeing with the word of God in Colossians, asking God to open a door for the word that we would uh, carefully, kindly, lovingly, by faith, but directly uh, confront them with the gospel according to the word of God. We wait and we watch. All the while we practice careful discernment about our own lives and about how our interaction with these false brothers and sisters, how, how it's affecting us. Am I picking up some of the same patterns that I see this false brother or sister in? And seeking out strong accountability from true brethren about it too. And so now let's look lastly at Jude's doxology. Praise God that just like Jude said, that he, he has called us, He sanctifies us. He preserves us to the end. Because without him, you and I would still be on that road to destruction ourselves. Jude focuses our minds on him as he closes. And so look with me now just at verse 24. And what I want you to see again, um, unto him who is able, right? We see that first that he's able. And to him be glory, right? He is able, therefore to him be glory. So, In case you're feeling overwhelmed by this whole task, to be a contender for the faith in your local church and in in this daily life, remember, the Lord is the one who is working under your working, right? Philippians 2, 12 and 13, work out your salvation with fear and trembling for it is God who works in you both to will and to work for his good pleasure. And listen here, verses 24 and 25. Now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Stumbling? I think I even put it in parentheses there. Falling into the trap of false teaching. And to present you faultless before the presence of his glory with exceeding joy. To God our Savior, who alone is wise, be glory and majesty, dominion and power, both now and forever. Amen. He is able. And so therefore to him be glory contend for the faith because false brethren undermine it and Jesus is worthy of their glory. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much again for your word. As we've heard your word now preached, would you, would you help us to respond? Help us respond to it rightly in thought and in word and in deed. Where we have sinned, would you produce in us repentance toward God, faith in the Lord Jesus? Would you direct our hearts to agree with you in every area of life? That in total, that we would love what you love and that we would hate what you hate. And all of this, Lord, that you and you alone would be greatly honored and glorified for the greatness of your grace as you ought to be. Oh, Lord, would you work mightily in us for your glory, for our good, and for the good of the nations, we pray. In the name of the holy and righteous Lord Jesus Christ, amen.